0: God, thank you for your great love, your kindness. And we ask you and we invite you, God, right now to just speak to our hearts, to inform us. God, we recognize that we all have ideas and concepts that, uh, left alone by themselves, don't lead to life, but actually lead away from you and thus lead away from life. And so that's why we come to you. That's why we come to the scriptures and we. Ask you, Lord, would you inform us, reveal to us, show us your heart, show us who you are, God, and then really change us, transform us so that we become like Jesus. God, we recognize that there's there's much to be learned. We need to learn. We want to grow. We want to be people that represent you in this world. And so commit this time in your hands. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So raise your hand if you guys don't have a Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Um, I don't have any slides today, so I'm going to give the guys who do multimedia a day off today. You're welcome. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I'm going to read. Um, so if you guys have been with us for any length like of time, you know that we are in a little mini-series looking at the person, the subject of the Holy Spirit. And we've been looking at various themes of how the Holy Spirit works and moves throughout Scripture and uh, And why this is so significant, why this is so important to us as a community of people. Because really, at the end of the day, God gives us his very presence, his empowering presence, the way Gordon Fee, a theologian, uh, actually describes it. God comes and lives inside of us. His presence uh, is there to empower us, to enable us, to be like Jesus, to have renewed minds, to live, as we already kind of touched on, as these faithful exiles In a world, in a community, in a culture that's vastly distinct, living according to a different narrative in a lot of ways, for the most part, is on a path to brokenness. All of us know what it's like to be on a path of brokenness or have come from a path of brokenness, or maybe you are currently on a path of brokenness. Well, the good news is that Jesus comes to transform us by informing us, giving us information from outside of ourselves to help us understand what he is offering. He's offering us life. So the Holy Spirit becomes the means whereby this becomes the reality for us. So what we've been looking at is various themes and topics and ideas throughout uh, the Bible that describe who the Holy Spirit is. So what I want to focus on today really is Uh, The idea of the Holy Spirit and particularly the subject of worship, because the two actually go hand in hand. There are several passages actually describe the Holy Spirit as being the one that leads or guides or informs or directs us in the matter of what it means to worship God. For example, Jesus. Uh, in, I believe, John chapter 4, meets with this woman at the well. Most of you guys are familiar with this Samaritan woman. He describes this is going to come a day when people worship God in spirit and in truth. So the implication, the impression is that worship will be worshiping God, loving God, devoting ourselves to something or someone or some ideal um, is going to, at some point, be brought into a realm of being connected to the heart and the mind and thoughts of God. This is also known as the Holy Spirit. So I think one of the greatest passages that highlights the subject of the Holy Spirit in worship is also kind of in a theological context in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 reads like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It's also a kind of a broader term that you can say, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, some of the best scholars and theologians have kind of taken that word spiritual worship and have kind of parsed it and wondered, is this actually a reference to what does spiritual worship mean? Is this a reference to the Holy Spirit? I think some of the best scholars and theologians would actually say that this spiritual worship is not necessarily a reference to the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit is implied within the context. In other words, that true worship of God is going to be empowered or enabled by the Holy Spirit, the holy presence of God. So what does that look like? Because again, when we're talking about spirit, we're talking about worship, these are ideas in a lot of ways that are very foreign to us in our common terminology. In the words that we use, in the language that we speak, uh, most of us don't use the phrase Holy Spirit or don't really talk about worship very often unless it's in some sort of a religious context. But the idea of worship is a really central one and a key one within the context of the Bible it's really also one that's largely contextualized even within our world. So in other words, let me put it this way. Every single one of us, regardless of who we are, regardless of whether or not you're spiritual or whether or not you would even deem yourself as being a secular type of a person, meaning you're a-spiritual. You're not into spiritualism. You no, wouldn't consider yourself religious. Uh, there's also an irreligious form or a non-religious form of or secularized form of worship. So the idea of worship basically boils down to this. Um, One scholar kind of described worship as being derived from two different words, worth and shape. Or in other words, whatever we deem as worthy or of worth, great worth, that is what we fix our heart on. Whatever it is that we fix our heart on is what we will ultimately be shaped by. In other words, we will begin to shape our lives or pattern our lives after whatever it is that we value. Okay, so you guys ready to think about this? So whatever it is that we ultimately value, so all of us in this room, no matter who we are, value something. So determining this um, is not as easy as you think. Some people think the fastest, quickest, easy way for you to determine what you value is by simply just opening up your checkbook. Some of you are like, what in the world is a checkbook? Um, But the fact of the matter is, is you can look at the way that you spend your money and determine what it is that you actually find valuable. All right? um, it could be clothing, it could become games or video games, it could become uh, sports, uh, it, it, whatever the thing is, is that there are things that we value and sometimes you can trace it back to money and what you spend on. Another way to think about it is, uh, I think one of the best ways to kind of determine what is that you value most is to ask the question, what one thing in your life, if it was taken away from you, would you begin to fall apart? What one thing or several things in your life that if you did not have it or if it was threatened, its existence, its tangibility in your life was threatened, how would you respond? Would you fall apart? Would you crumble? Would you fall into a moment of despair? Another word for that is would you disintegrate into a position of hell? Would you come undone? That's what hell is, by the way. It's coming undone because you've lost something of infinite value to you. That's one of the ways in which we begin to determine what we worship, or what we are shaped by based upon its worth and value to us. So with that being said, I realize I may have just completely shocked you, and some of you are like, whoa, that's deep. Like The others of you are just like, what are you talking about? But the point of the matter is, is that all of us have something in our life that we are shaped by that we value, that we place worth Upon. It could be relationships, it could be money, it could be power. If you think this through, um, if, for example, you worship food, right, if you love food, you are literally someone that is a food connoisseur, you love food, you probably will be the type of person, if you worship food, you will be willing, okay, you will make a willful sacrifice to put on the altar of life, you will sacrifice perhaps fashion and even good health, right? Now, just think this through for a second. If you love food, I mean, if you live for the taste of food or the comfort of food that it brings, you may be willing to sacrifice good health. Is this making sense to you guys? But let's say, for example, some of you might be like, I don't worship food. I actually worship fashion and health. So if you worship or value in an infinite sense fashion and health, you may actually be tempted to sacrifice food. Does that make sense? Or friendship, because sometimes friendships and food, there's nothing better than friendship paired with food, right? So in other words, think about some of the best times you've ever had in your life are with some of the best people you really love to be around and the best food. When those two things are together. But if you value fashion, you value your physique, you value how you look, you might actually say no to that opportunity to go hang out with some good friends and get some really good sushi or some really good food or whatever the case is, because you're like, ah, my figure. Right? You, get, you following what I'm saying? Here's another one to think about: If you worship money and or power, you may be willing to actually sacrifice family relationships. Maybe willing to even sacrifice honesty. But you know, see what I'm saying? Uh, if you worship, say, for example, honesty. In other words, your number one desire in your life is to live with and be a person of integrity. You actually may sacrifice power because someone in your business might be like, "Hey, look, you want a raise? You're like, I really want a raise," and they're like. All you got to do is be completely deceptive and a horrible person. All right, another word came to my mind, and I completely edited that out even before I said it because I didn't want to say sorry or get bad emails. But the point of the matter is that there are people that would be willing to sacrifice position and money and honor because they want to be seen as a very highly reputable person. We value things. Whatever it is that we value, we are actually shaped by those things in our lives. They shape our lives. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay. So the point is, is that what Paul is describing is that we are, as part of our spiritual worship, in other words, what worship looks like that is actually infused by or blessed by or guided by or led by the Holy Spirit, is worship that has to do with us, the way Paul describes it, as presenting ourselves or our bodies to God. Now listen to this again. Romans chapter 1, uh, 12, verse 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So in other words, if you just kind of truncate that verse, just listen to it again. By the mercies of God, present your bodies, dot, 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 to God. In other words, the charge is, based upon something, in this case, if you look at the beginning part of the verse, by the mercies of God. In other words, God is merciful. God has demonstrated something. Paul is basically just using this phrase to attach onto all of his other amazing, outstanding information that Paul has been unpacking in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Paul says, look, I can only summarize all that I've been telling you about God is by simply this simple statement that God is full of mercy, Because God is full of mercy, present yourselves to him. I would suggest to you what worship really is, and one of the ways in which you can determine whether whether or not what you're worshiping is, what are you presenting yourselves to? All of us have bodies. Uh, That's what makes us humans really not the the only thing, but one of the things, uh, is that we present our bodies to something, to someone, to some idea. We give ourselves physically. We give ourselves emotionally. We give ourselves, in all of these ways, over to something. What Paul is saying is because God is merciful, give yourselves to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is what spiritual worship looks like. This is what it looks like to really, truly come to life. And again, we become shaped by what we worship. It's one of the reasons why Again, it's so important to ask ourselves the questions, and not just simply once in your life, but as an ongoing act of discipleship or following Jesus, to ask the question, what am I worshiping? What am I giving myself to? What am I presenting my body to? What am I being shaped by? What am I being shaped like? Because if God becomes the one whereby he restores, through his mercy, your relationship back into a right, sound relationship to himself, and you worship him, you are shaped by his infinite value and worth, you love him, you devote yourself to him, you will then begin to be shaped by him. It's great, because if you think about it this way, what's God like? What better being is there to be shaped like? God is love. God is kind. God is filled with grace and compassion. God is all of these things. And so to be A worshiper of God at some point will begin to pour forth from your life all of these characteristic traits that look just like God. That's why it's so important for us to think about what it is that we are actually presenting ourselves to. So, what I want to do, really kind of in closing, kind of funny to think about closing, but I got a handful of things before we close. But uh, what I want to do is I want to basically just talk a little bit about posture, because that's really what it is. It's posture. What is our posture before God? Is it one of worship? Is it one of adoration? Is it one of affection? Or is it one of distance? Is it one in which we're alienated from God? Is it one in which we feel as if we're not welcomed? Is it one as as if we are standing at a distance from this God? Really, what is our posture? And what I want to do is I want to basically do three things. One, I want to read kind of a theological understanding or practical way of understanding this or kind of put it in a a theological slash rational way of uh, reflecting upon posture. Second thing I want to do is I want to simply take a look at a narrational uh, perspective of uh, this posture, reflection upon posture. And finally, I just want to end with a very practical thing. In other words, uh, I want to invite you to, as we worship, as we close, to align your posture up with that of being God. Because in other words, How horrible would it be to simply talk about posture and relate passages in the Bible to it without ourselves actually engaging with God and saying, God, is my life one of, or my posture before you is one of submission and love and affection and kindness? So with that, I want to read real quickly. We'll go through Romans chapter 6. I want you guys to open your Bibles. Romans 6, or go backwards if you're already in Romans 12. Romans 6. I want to read verses 11 through 19. Romans 6, verses 11 through 19. I'm actually going to read this to you guys out of the New Living Translation. I really like the way this kind of read, this particular passage. So if you guys don't have that translation, I apologize. Um, I'm going to read to you out of the New Living. It says this. So you should consider yourselves, Paul is referring to, speaking to Christians. In other words, these are people that have trusted Jesus, again, this is what a Christian is, a Christian is one who's been saved from something, in this case, this world that's broken, that's dysfunctional, that promises much, delivers little, uh, to someone, to Jesus. He's being saved to follow Christ. And again, a Christian is one that's living in this ongoing, unpacking and uh, uh, translating and identifying, understanding... What does it look like to live for Christ in a world that is either ignorant of God or completely hostile towards God? That is really what a Christian is. It's not new. It's not something unique over the past you know, 48 hours to a Christian. This has always been the context of which Christians have lived in Trying to navigate and figure out how do we follow the wisdom of God in a world that does not value the wisdom of God. It's really simple what it is. Paul then says, So then you should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And then Paul gives this charge or this admonition or a series of them. He says this do not let sin control the way that you live, do not give in to the sinful desires. In short, again, a lot of times I don't want to assume that you understand what the word sin means. But in the best, most simplest way I would define sin is some would say sin is just simply missing the mark. And I think that's, that's a great way to identify it if you understand, like, terms in terms of archery, all right? Um, if you follow the Hunger Games, you know what archery is. If you have no idea what uh, archery is, it's kind of a it's, a it's an image that's kind of lost on us. But one of the best ways I would think about it is this, and just kind of to... to Process it. Really, God created us for Himself. God has a purpose whereby He designed us. So, if we submit our hearts to whatever that design is, in other words, if we say, God, my life's entirely yours, I don't understand your ways, a lot of them don't make sense to me. And by the way, if you are in that category, if you've ever been like, God, I have no idea what you're doing, and I really don't understand why you say the things that you do, that's okay because that should not shock you. If God's ways are truly the ways of God, and you're just simply a mere human, that would make sense, right? In other words, three-year-olds don't fully understand the ways of mom and dad, right? Mom's like, turn off the iPad, all right? You got to eat your peas. They're like, I don't get this, mom. I want to play with the iPad forever. (laughs) Mom's like, battery's going to die. I don't understand what it means for a battery to die. I don't understand what it means for me to have to eat peas. It doesn't matter. You don't need to really fully understand. You just need to obey. You obey. And you live. You disobey and iPad gets taken away and you feel like you're actually entered into the third degree of hell. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, just trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm your parent. So it shouldn't shock you when God says things from his word that actually completely unsettle us. That's okay. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to, in community, unpack the word, of the scripture, to really understand what it looks like to live according to God's ways in a world that's, again, very distinct, very unique. So Paul says, do not let sin control you. So sin, again, going back to this, is sort of this way of saying, I'm not going to live in harmony with God. God says, follow this path, and we say, I don't, I don't. I think I want to live according to that path. I'd rather live in a distinctly unique path that I've created. God says if you, if you do that, it will actually lead not to life the way that you think it might. It will actually lead to brokenness. In other words, mom could say to child, if you never, never, ever, ever eat good food and all you simply eat is really bad stuff and you never take your eyes off of your video games you at some point will enter into brokenness. Your eyes will go bad. Your body will begin to break down. You have to obey. Mom, you need to take your naps. You need to do all these. So the point of the matter is, is God says, follow me and you'll live. Not follow me. In other words, break away from me or emancipate yourself from what I have to say. And that enters into kind of this either just simply missing the mark of what God has designed or another word to describe for that. It's transgression, meaning God says, here's a line, don't cross it. If you cross that line, you'll fall off into the street. And we're like, foolish little kids, we're like, fall off into the street. We're like, God, why would you have done that to me? And God's like, I, I lovingly told you don't step over that line. That is that was a willful violation of what I said. It led to your broken limb. It led to your bruises on your body. It led to your wounds on your soul. And the hope is, is that God says, Don't live according to this path of sin or brokenness. Follow me in other words of what he's saying. Do not let sin control the way that you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. And then he says in verse 13, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. In other translations, it actually says the exact same verbiage as Romans 12. Um, Instead, present your bodies as instruments to God. Give yourselves to God. So on the one hand, don't give yourselves over to actions or attitudes or ideas that are actually incongruent with the heart and the mind of God that comes through inspiration of the Scriptures, that comes through the revelation of God's Word, but instead it leads to sin, it leads to brokenness, it leads to patterns of life that are unhealthy, that are ultimately will lead to, if never, never unbroken, lead to ultimate destruction, a.k.a. hell. Jesus says, don't live according to those patterns of life. Instead, break free from that by the power of the Holy Spirit that's living in you and live according to me. Present your bodies as his instruments to me. Let me use them. And he goes on to say uh, in verse 13, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your body as an instrument to do what is right, and for the glory of God, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set you free from the law, does that mean we go on sinning? Of course not. Verse 16 says, Don't you realize that you've become a slave to whatever it is that you choose to obey? So again, think about this. He says, you can, choose, you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So I want you to just ponder that for a second. There's a path that seems right, the Bible says, unto men. It seems obvious. In other words, it seems plain as day. And it, to follow that path, it seems like it will lead to life. But God actually says it will, in the end, lead to death. So let me put it this way. There are paths which may seem obvious to us in this world, and they may even, to some degree, be recognized or uh, idealized by culture at large. But the point of the matter is, in the long run, right, when I'm not talking to the most, you know, next few years. I'm talking in the long run. I'm talking in the in the distant, in in the long term. God says it has an expiration date on it. At some point, it will fall apart. I think about abortion. Our nation legalized abortion years ago and said, it's okay. It's okay, we believe, for a woman to have full right over her body. And again, it's an argument. Um, But at the same time, let me just suggest this. Women that had the freedom to abort children and their baby a month into the post-abortion, do they feel liberated or do they feel a sense of guilt? I've counseled literally dozens of women that feel broken. They feel filthy. They feel a sense of guilt. In other words, what hoped to give them life and promise a new future actually became a corridor, a vortex, a pain. In other words, the sustainability of life really didn't happen because something took place that actually violated or broke ranks from this life that comes from this life-giving God. In other words, what God said is... If we choose a path that follows away from the heart of God, actually will not lead to sustainability in life, actually will lead to brokenness. And ultimately, in the end, unless interrupted, death. He goes on to say, verse 17, he says, Thank God, once you were once slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey the teachings that you've been given. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because the weakness of your human fl- nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all of this. Again, some of us might have a great difficulty understanding this context of slavery, but again, I don't have time to unpack all this. But this is a language that would have been very familiar to Paul in his day, and he's simply using it to say, look, at the end of the day, the analogy that comes to life is that we are all slaves to something, right? Uh, Bob Dylan was absolutely spot on when he says you've got to serve somebody. We all have something or some ideal or some concept. The Bible describes that as either idolatry whereby we worship anything other than God or an ideal or a concept or we worship the true and living God. So Jesus is saying through Paul that to serve anything other than God and what God has revealed about himself actually will lead to brokenness. It will lead to death, it'll lead to, again, unless interrupted, destruction, what Jesus describes as Gehenna. So the point is, is that if you are in Christ, you've been set free. So therefore, present your bodies, give your body as an instrument to God. The idea of presenting yourself to God, that's kind of the theological way of thinking about this. Now, I want to think of this in a narrative, I'm going to wrap this up, in a narrative. uh, Turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It's a story that most of us are familiar with. It's, if I were to start this out, I would say, uh, you know, a Pharisee, a uh, prostitute, and Jesus walk into a room, and what happens next is what's unfolded in the story. So uh, you may have a hard time thinking theologically or rationally in terms of some of the context that Paul described there might make uh, not a whole lot of sense to you, but I think this story will make some sense because it's an absolutely beautiful depiction of what it looks like to present one's body to Jesus to God, who's the life-giving God. It says this, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and then he went in the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table, which is kind of a shocking thing, um, to recline at someone's table, really, or to be invited, to some, recline at someone's table was oftentimes uh, a position not so much of honor where the man of honor would have been, in this case, the, the Pharisee. So he was actually inviting Jesus into his house so he would have been, the Pharisee would have been the man of honor, Jesus would have been just the lowly you know, uh, a gratuitous uh, one who is receiving the gifts from this outstanding, awesome, upright, moral, erudite type of religious leader. And then Jesus bites and he's like, sure, I'll come, whatever, I'll come. So Jesus sits at the table and says, and behold, a woman of the city. It's a great phrase, a woman of the city. What does that mean? She is, in short, a hooker. She comes walking in, which is shocking because she's walking into literally the leader of the church in in those contexts, in that culture. If you think, uh, what trying to understand what the culture was like, think modern-day Taliban. Think modern-day extreme uh, right-wing form of Muslim governments where women have to walk behind a man or they have to wear... Uh, a robe covering their face, and the man is not able to actually talk with a woman in public. Um, Think about that. That's the context. So this woman literally is risking entirely everything just to come into this room where she knows she'll be criticized because she is a woman of the city. She is a hooker. She has a reputation. She sits down at the feet of Jesus, this renowned teacher, and it says... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her, of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who the, what sort of woman this was that was touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, him said. I love this because Simon, the Pharisee, never speaks this. He's literally thinking this. You get this? Not a word has come out of his mouth. He's literally just sitting back watching this with a sense of, like, shock and awe. He's like, I cannot believe a hooker, A, walked into my house. B, she sits down at Jesus' feet. C, she's crying. D, she's pouring out this really costly ointment. F, where in the world should get the money to buy that ointment? She must have really had a very big week, but how in the world can she do this? And if Jesus really was a great prophet, how and why would he allow her to do this? Jesus then, knowing his thoughts, speaks and says, Simon, I got a question for you. Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled The debt of them both. Now which of them will love the most? And Simon answered, The one I suppose who he canceled the larger debt. And then he said to him, You have judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered in your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil she has anointed my feet with ointment. The picture's head versus feet. Which one would you rather touch? The head. But Jesus says, she actually hasn't taken her hands off of my feet, which is filthy. On that day, they wore Birkenstocks. Maybe not Birkenstocks, but they wore shoes that made their feet filthy because they didn't have sidewalks back in the day. It's just like Oceano and Los Osos. And... <laughs> their feet would have been filthy and Jesus would have been filthy and this woman didn't give a rip because all she knew is that the one who forgave her, the one who extended mercies of God was there. So she lavishly pours out this worship. She literally becomes the embodiment of presenting your body. To God, because of the mercies of God. So I'm going to finish just simply with a question. What posture do we have before God? Look, when Christian culture merely refers to worship as a product to be consumed by the church, rather than a posture that, has, that is really to consume the church, we have a problem. Let me repeat that again. When Christian culture refers to worship as a product to be consumed by the church rather than a posture that is to consume the church, we have a problem. Let me put this in another terminology or language. When you come and all you see worship as is nothing more than you judging critically the song. I don't like that song. Or I don't want to sing that song because all I want to do is hear a sermon and get out of here. And whenever you set the music at the end, it makes me mad. I'm done. You have done nothing but reveal the fact you see worship as nothing more than a product. You're choosing to not partake of the product. That's it. You're just a consumer. You have no idea of the posture that Jesus invites you into. And this is what worship is. This is what spiritual worship is. By the mercies of God, being fueled by and motivated by this great God that's not angry, he's not ticked off, he is not looking for the occasion to destroy you or wipe you off the map. He is welcoming you. The reason why we know this is because of what God has done for us. Jesus comes into this world, bears our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, our sinfulness, all of this upon himself. He bears the consequences of, of them. In other words, if you think about The sum total of our lives, whatever choices, directions, ideas, ideologies we follow, if we were to follow those ideologies that have nothing to do with God all the way to the sum total end, every one of them will lead to some form of brokenness or chaos. Every one of them. Some faster than others. Those are called consequences, by the way. Consequences that end in brokenness, death. And Jesus comes and bears all of those consequences upon himself. In other words, what we see in Christ are the mercies of God, not giving us what we deserve, but instead taking for us what we deserve. Jesus exchanging our position of one of brokenness and sinfulness and rebellion for a place of being made whole. This is what Christianity is. It's what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. You don't understand everything at first. It'll take a lifetime to figure it all out. And really, actually, eternity. Still wanting to figure it out, probably. But the fact of the matter is, this is an invitation that God comes and says, Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, filled with anxieties and troubled, and your soul is in turmoil. And you feel as if the waves are coming over you and crushing you and weighing you down and oppressing you. Come to me because I will give you life. Because I went under the waves and I let them. Take me down instead so that you, who are being taken down formerly by them, can actually receive the buoyancy that I have to offer. I'll lift you up. I'll raise you. I'll give you life. This is what it means to worship God. So the question is, what are you presenting yourselves to today? It's an invitation for you to present yourselves to God. We're going to respond to God in song and in supper, we say. We partake of the communion. We have communion in the front now. It's easy for you, and we have communion in the back for you to just partake of it. It's a way for us to be reminded. We also have rugs in the front, so I'm going to have the worshiping come up. So we have some rugs in the front That as we sing. If you would like to just get by yourself with God and get on your knees before God and let the posture of your body become conformed to the posture of your heart. or If you want the posture of your heart to even conform to the posture of your body, then I suggest, think about getting on your face before God, worshiping him calling upon him, loving him, asking him to transform your heart, which oftentimes is just like mine, just prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love and bring us back. So there's some rugs in the front, some communion in the back. We're going to sing as a way of reminding ourselves of this great God. We have some people that are going to be off to the side, be available for you to pray, to minister to you. So if anything you have going on in your life, let's respond. Let's enter in. Let's worship.